This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a Small small town. Town. Hey everyone, Tara here again. Um, As I said before, I'm a civil servant. I'm also a military veteran married to a retired military guy named Sean. Um, We're both kind of car geeks. He may be a little bit more of a car geek than me, but I still love cars. Um, We have a number of cats because they just seem to accumulate. (laughs) She adapted two of mine. I was going to say, some people bring their cats when they come to live with us and then leave them there. (laughs) So it's not all our fault. Yeah, it was. Well, (laughs) and so my husband is severely allergic. And you were only dating at the time. Yeah. You need to vet those guys better next time. If there is a next time. Please no. Please no. No, no. No more next times. I like Rick. And I am Melissa, by the way. Um, I am dog mama to El Diablo. I am an author, a web developer, and you just talk- heard me talking about my husband. So I am married. He is also a uh, military veteran, and uh, he does now system administration type of stuff, stuff that is a lot more than I can understand. <laughs> Hey, you know, what can I say? And I deal with talent development, so you take what you will from that. (laughs) Anyhow, so um, last episode, we talked about Roger Harlow, and we also mentioned that we welcome comments. Well, we got one. Yeah, we got one. We got one from my dad. Um, So my dad was telling me that, uh, well, so to start, my dad was postmaster of Kiwani for uh, many years. And he was out one day working on the docks and Roger happened to walk by and they started a conversation. And then uh, my dad went into the office and shortly after that, the police showed up and started asking him questions about Roger. So they were obviously investigating him at that time. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I actually went to the same church as Roger. He didn't impress on me enough to remember his name when we did the the episode, when we talked about him really quick. But since we had that um, comment from her dad, we're like, well, let's go do a little more research. And I'm like, oh, look, he went to my church. That's awesome. <laughs> I was also a Sunday school teacher at that church, but I, I did like kindergarten. So. Well, isn't it great, too, that like he was, wasn't he a Sunday school teacher? Yes, he was and, a Sunday school yeah, teacher. And like, I remember reading that and going, oh, well, awesome. Yes, great. such a nice guy, you he know? He was just such a good friend. He, he let himself into people's houses. And then stole from them. Yeah, because we also found that different articles stated that he was charged with 81 versus 83 counts of burglary. Mm-hmm. I found a picture where, like, one of the arresting officers had all this stuff across his desk. <laughs> You're like, oh, look, can you imagine going, oh, there's my thing. That's, yeah. that's mine. Wait, it's not in my cupboard? <laughs> um, but <laughs> anyhow. Really crazy. Yeah, we didn't actually find out what his total sentencing ended up being. I think there was a max of 15 years or something to that effect. But we did find an article on about day one of his sentencing. Um, a bunch of people had come to do their victim statements. And, of course, I recognized a handful of names. One in particular, they that really jumped out was the car locks. They had actually lent him $10,000 because I knew he had fallen, uh, you know, on hard times or something. And you're like, really? You, you, 
get the you bamboozle these people to help you out who are wonderful caring people and you steal from them on top of that yeah he was really such a great dude wasn't he yeah i think we did pretty much nail it when we said he was the best friend of the decade here definitely so he apparently died in 2010 of uh it, it appears he died of cancer And at the time, he was working as a custodian of some sort in a some company in Moline. That I'm I'm not gonna just drop names here. Yeah. So that is your little update on Roger Harlow. So I'm going to now talk about the second case in Kewanee, Illinois, which is the Wooly case. So on February twentieth, nineteen ninety five, in Philly's Tavern. Um, Martin and his wife, Marcia Woolley, frequent, were frequent people at Phillies, and they were present at the tavern throughout the day. Um, Martin and Marcia arrived at the tavern approximately 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, during the afternoon, they drank beer and talked with other patrons. Uh, the Woolies left the tavern at approximately 5 or 5.30 p.m. to go home and prepare dinner for Marcia's Marcia. Marsha's children. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. They returned to the tavern. I can really talk today. Okay. They returned to the tavern around 6 p.m. and spent the evening drinking beer, talking, and playing pool with Jeff Ince and Debbie Bros. Ince was a bartender at Phillies and had been working until 7 p.m. when he was relieved by Rain Baldwin. While the group was playing pool sometime between... 8 and 8.30 p.m., Debbie Bros saw the imprint of a gun under Martin's shirt stuck in the back of his pants. Neither Ince nor Bros saw the Martin saw Martin move a gun from his pants to his jacket pocket while they were all at the tavern. In conversation, Martin made a comment to Ince that he was the type of person who could walk into McDonald's and just open up on everybody. Sounds like an awesome guy. Yeah. Um, so Dee Turley and Kathy Chorus arrived at Phillies at approximately 8.30 p.m. Ensign Bros left the tavern at 9.15 p.m. Remaining in the tavern at that time were the Woolies, Martin and Marsha, Dee Turley, Rain Baldwin, Kathy Chorus, and Rick Van Wees. Van Ways and Curris left approximately 9.30 p.m. At this time, Dee Turley, Marsha, and Martin were sitting in that order on bar stools along the bar. Martin decided to rob the tavern at that time. He had been carrying a 9mm gun in the back of his pants. He pulled out the gun and shot Baldwin two or three times in the head, causing her to fall to the ground. He then shot Turley once in the head, causing her to fall. Turley was standing when Martin shot her, and Marsha was sitting on a bar stool between Martin and Turley. Martin then looked out the front window of the tavern and then walked behind the bar and took money out of the cash register and two money bags from underneath the register. At that time, Baldwin moved or made a noise, and Martin shot her again in the head. Martin then grabbed Marsha and... He pulled her out of the bar. They got into a pickup truck they had borrowed from a friend and drove home. Martin took the cash out of the money bags and burned the bags and their remaining contents in a wood stove. He hid the cash in a hole in the wall 
of a bedroom closet and put the gun in a freezer located in his friend's house. Uh, well, it was his garage, um, and the friend was Carl Ger- Gerken. Uh, the next day, Martin asked Gerken to throw the gun into a river. Martin told police that Marcia did not handle the gun that evening, that she had no prior knowledge of what was he was going to do. At approximately 10 p.m. on February 20th, 1995, the bodies of Rain Baldwin and Deanna D. Turley were found in Philly's Q and Brew Tavern in Kiwani. Uh, Peter Dulslager, Baldwin's boyfriend, had called the tavern at approximately 9.45 p.m. and talked to Baldwin, who was tending bar. Um, Dulslager arrived at the tavern shortly thereafter and discovered the bodies of Baldwin and Turley laying on the floor. So that would have been horrible to walk yeah, in we, on. We just talk to her. Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, everything in Kiwani, this was something I just was um, back in Illinois over Labor Day weekend, and it was in DeKalb, which isn't that far away. But, like, everything, my husband's like, oh, how long will it take us to get there? Uh, five, ten minutes. Yeah. It's, that town is not even 50,000 people. So everything is just so close. So you can imagine he called her at 945, was probably planning oh, I'm going to come over and I'll stay with you while you close up. And, you know, what do you think? Two, five minutes? Maybe. It, it's really, yeah, it's not far. And so you know that this this murder definitely happened very quick um, whenever Martin decided to rob the place and kill the two women. It was it was done very quickly. Right. And uh, we, I mean, we basically found a little bit about the, the two people who were killed. D was actually um, born in Schweitzingen, Germany, and got married in 1980 to Jack Turley. Um, she'd gone to Blackhawk East. Um, that's a it's a small community college that is just south of the town. Um, she'd gone there for two years. Was a member of the Midwest Pool League because this was a Q and Brew place, so yeah. people went there to just hang out and play pool for a while. Um, she had a daughter. Uh, Rain Baldwin had been a bartender at Phillies uh, for a while. She had two daughters. Uh, and, you know, it, there's just, I just don't have a lot to say here about this other than it just seems so senseless. It, it really was. And I, I do kind of remember this. I think you had, you were in the, military. in the military. So Yeah, and I was still living in Kiwani at the time. I I definitely do remember this and that there was a lot of shock through the town. I mean, you know, it, it is a small town. It is a a place where you don't expect things like this to happen, especially from residents. You yeah. Know? And like like we said um, about our friend there, Roger, people did not lock their doors and you just expected to be safe. I mean, even though, you know, there was a lot of little scuffles and Mm-hmm. There's a lot of drama, if you will, don't take my man type stuff, because that's actually, um, we'll get into it a little bit more, but we, we had read a little bit about there being some bad blood between yeah. Marsha and a and couple of these ladies. D. And yeah. D. yeah. So, um, but first. All right. So much like we did last time, we're going to play with some fun facts, if you will. So as I think would be pretty obvious common in these small towns in the middle of nowhere we had a resident boogeyman (laughs) our boogeyman was the deer man and missy said she hadn't heard much about this it's so funny i did it die 
remember this at all. And maybe I I don't know why. And I, I mean, this was at a Johnson Sock Trail, which I know we went to all, all the, the time. time. Yeah, there's a there's basically this park that's a little north of the town. And there's I mean, come on, it's a small town. There's not a whole heck of a lot going on. Right. And that's just one of those things. I mean, everybody ends up at Johnson's for one reason or the other. Yeah. Go to the 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 circular barn and yeah, just, Ryan's round cool. barn. Yeah, yeah, the and brown barn, and then there's a yeah, there's just there's it, a lake. There's, there's you can go do. out on boats. We had Girl Scout camp there. I mean, it, yeah, there were you could go camping, you could go fishing, you could just go hang out. Yeah, because camping's kind of a big thing for the Midwest. Yeah, and it's just one of those things. But anyhow, so this has been around apparently since like the 50s. Um, so they said that he lived in the densely wooded area surrounding the park. And he's half human, half deer. He has an antlered head and a partial torso of a buck deer. Arms of a man and the legs and lower body of a full-grown man. So he sounds pretty weird. Deer, um, the deer, deer man. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't I resist. But uh, so really it was, I think it was probably just brought up as this thing to scare people who are out there doing, I don't remember ever going out there for parking. Maybe that was a thing in the 50s to 80s. You know, I should have asked my sister if she'd gone up there parking, but like she would tell me. (laughs) Right. Anyhow. (laughs) But so apparently there was um, one of the former editors of the Star Courier. So that would be Kiwani's paper. Jerry, uh, Jerry Moriarty, he seems to be the one who really like helped this legend grow. He uh, apparently some graffiti started to appear around the town saying, as Missy just said, <laughs> "Fear the deer man and the deer man lives. Deer man was here." Kind of wonder if Mr. Moriarty did those uh, things. He, maybe he, yeah, maybe he was trying to uh, well, get some readership going. I something. don't know, but he really did keep the legend alive. Uh, there was also this gentleman named Dave Clark. He wrote a bunch of articles about the creature over the years. Um, even in 2011, still there was some article by Clark and some guy from named Kevin Jones, who was a native of Kiwani and. He graduated in 67. So again, I think this was really probably more of like the 50s to 60s era. I had heard of Deer Man, at least. I don't remember people going up to Johnson Sock Trail to go parking. Maybe they got all scared away of doing that and we did other things. Maybe. But um, so they just, yeah, he, they said that he was a, he could have been a manifestation of ancient mythological features stalking the woods. It's said that uh, the deer are emissaries of Sarunos and that they will do whatever he asks them to do. Perhaps this is merely just a servant of the deity who has gone mad in the modern era. In any case, it is clear that something once did or perhaps is still stalking through the woods of (laughs) Illinois. Nobody knows for sure, but it's likely the truth will never be known. Perhaps the creature still walks among the trees hunting for its next meal. Anyhow, it's, it's just some of the little things that they've written. I also found a Facebook page. Don't go to it. Um, yeah, do not. Some, some people apparently turned this into a, um, you know, um, low-grade porn. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Originally, they put it out on, like, YouTube. YouTube took it down. Imagine that. Yes. I was like, oh, my goodness. It was, yeah. Anyhow. Pretty bad. Dear man. 
Okay, so back to the case. Um, autopsies revealed that Charlie had been shot once in the forehead from a distance of less than three to four feet. The bully, bullet entered Charlie's head at a slightly upward angle. Baldwin had been shot three times in the head. The pathologist who conducted the autopsies could not determine the order in which the three bullets had struck Baldwin. One bullet struck her right cheek and would not have been fatal. A second bullet entered her head and lodged in her spine and would have caused instant paralysis but not instant death. A third bullet entered the right side of her head and would have killed her instantly. None of the bullets which struck Baldwin were fired at close range. Um, so this is sad, you know. Yeah. Um, and originally, apparently, he uh, he actually confessed yes. rather quickly. So a lot of the details that um, I gave in the last section were directly from his confession. Um, and then he filed a motion to suppress his confession. Um, so this was denied. The confession was put into evidence. And as the trial went on, you know, they they continued to um, include his testimony from his confession. Well, and, and he either, I think he gave like two different versions too. Because at another, yes. the, we'll get into this more. There's, yeah. there's two really, there's there are actually three theories. Because of course, he came up with a third theory too. Yeah. saying that Marsha did all of this. So there's several different theories floating around, um, but at the end of the day, we've got the autopsies saying three to four feet for D, and as in one shot, and then uh, the bartender, right. Renee, Rain, right? Rain, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, she got three shots, and um, purportedly she was uh, alive for the first two. The, she was alive after the first two. Yeah. And made a noise. So we'll get into more. Okay. So Lieutenant Shanahan testified that the physical evidence at the crime scene was consistent with the version of events given in the defendant's statement. On cross-examination, Lieutenant Shanahan testified that he did not perform any tests on the defendant's hands to determine if he had recently fired a gun. He stated that the gunshot residue test is antiquated and unreliable. So I went into researching that part because, I don't know, I, I mean, watching crime shows, it always seems like it's... But if you think about it, lately we haven't, I haven't seen that as much with more recent That is shows. true. So I'm really curious, so I'm going to keep, we're both going to keep digging on yeah. this one. Because it, I wonder if it's time, the amount of time Could in between. Be. Because they didn't actually question them until the next day. Right. And, I mean, there's that bit where it can detect small amounts of residue. So if you even handled the gun, you might have had some. Yes. So, I mean, there's definitely arguments for and against it. So we'll keep digging on that one and kind of maybe do a little update later. Um, So then Carl Gherkin, the the friend that had uh, had taking the gun, the gun right. for them. Uh, so he was called by the state and testified that on February 21st, 1995, the defendant told him he had put a gun in the freezer in Gherkin's garage. The de- defendant asked Gherkin to dispose of the gun by throwing it into the river. Gherkin, however, kept the gun because there was nothing wrong with it and he enjoys firearms. So, so if you're going to get rid of a gun, give it to a friend who doesn't like guns. Yeah. 
Um, Gherkin took the gun out of the freezer and put it in a dresser drawer at his girlfriend's house. Kiwani police later recovered the gun from that location. Forensic testing revealed that the bullets and spent shell casings recovered from the murder scene were fired from his gun. Police officers, or Illinois state police officers, recovered $287.25 in cash from a hole in the wall of a bedroom closet in the Woolies' house. Fingerprints lifted from the currency matched those of the defendant. So think about that. $287.25 for to murder two people. I mean, really, how sad. Just sad. I mean, me. There's the whole thing of, well, you could say, well, they didn't know exactly how much they were going to get. But, but again, it's yeah. a little hole in the wall in Kiwani, Illinois. Right. You shouldn't expect it to be the mother load. It's just worthless. Really worthless. Um, so the crime scene technician, Mike, okay, I can't pronounce this, Ergrizek. Or Grizek? Or Grizek. Examined examined the murder scene and formulated a reconstruction of the crimes. Charlie's body was found lying on the floor with her ankle resting on the bottom of a bar stool. Or Grizek basically (laughs) said that Charlie was shot at close range from between three to six feet away and that she was sitting on the bar stool when she was shot. Baldwin's body was located on... The floor behind the bar, and he testified that the bullet to Baldwin's cheek could have caused her body to spin, and the bullet that lodged in her spine could have caused immediate paralysis and caused her to fall to the floor. In his opinion, the shooter of these two shots was located in the southwest corner of the bar and could have been coming out of the men's bathroom. He further testified that at the time, the third bullet entered Baldwin's head. Her head was in contact with some hard surface, such as the floor. In his opinion, the shot was fired while Baldwin was lying on the floor by someone standing over her. He testified that the shooter of this shot could not have been standing on a bar stool on the other side of the bar because of the distance across the bar and the angle of the shot. And this will be important because of the other theories that we were talking about. Right. So next called was Donald Tomsha. Tomsha was incarcerated with the defendant at the Henry County Jail while the defendant was awaiting trial. Tomsha had been convicted of burglary in 1993 and possession of a controlled substance in 1994. When he met the defendant in jail, Tomsha had been charged with burglarizing three businesses. Tomsha subsequently pled guilty to those bulk burglaries and received a sentence of six months in jail and probation. All right. So he testified that the defendant confessed to him that he had shot and killed the victims. The defendant told Tomsha that he shot the bartender as she was turning up the volume on the television at the defendant's request. The defendant then handed the gun to his wife to shoot Turley But Marsha froze, and the defendant took the gun back and shot Turley himself. The defendant took the money from the cash register, then shot the bartender again because she was still alive. The defendant told Tomsha he had given the gun to a friend who was supposed to throw it into a river, which we know didn't happen. Um, And he wrote it all down on a legal pad and signed it in Tomsha's presence. Now, that's kind of weird to me that... 
yeah, he like I mean, wrote it down and then oh hey you're confessing yeah. write this confession for me and i'm gonna and sign it sign it this, yeah this sounds super weird to me yeah i agree I, I mean i don't disagree that he might have told this guy this story but right at the same time i don't know if to me, this becomes less dependable because he offered the yeah. paperwork. Because it's like, you're trying too hard, dude. And he kind of said that, like, he wasn't expecting anything from this. But, you know, if it helped him out, it, well, great. That would be awesome. You know? So yeah. it's one of those, not really sure on, on how much of this is true. But, you know. This I mean, is what we... Yeah. This Mr. Tomsha guy. He may have heard... Uh, I'm thinking he probably heard him talk about it some. Yeah. And then was all, oh, hey, how can I get this to help me? Yeah. And then, I mean, I, they don't have anything about having handwriting experts or anybody. I don't think they even gave him that much. Right. I th- I'm pretty sure the prosecution and the defense both went, well, you know, he's somebody that can talk about it. And the defense is like, I'm not even going to bother with this. <laughs> I think on its face, the jury would probably look at this guy with a, a heavy, I wouldn't even say a grain of salt. Let's just get a salt lick over here. All right. So next, the defendant testified on his own behalf. So this is where that kind of alternate story comes out. So he states that he and Marsha went to Phillies at approximately 1 or one thirty on February 20th. 1995, the defendant had stuck his gun in the back of his pants because they planned on doing some target shooting that afternoon. This is February. And remember that this is also um, early in the day where they had ran home at like 530 and then came back. So... He never put the gun down. I guess. Anyhow, whatever. Um, So they were both drinking. They left the bar around five to prepare dinner for Marsha's children and returned to the bar after. He and Marsha played pool and continued to drink. Dee and Kathy Curris arrived at the bar around eight or eight thirty. Marsha was very jealous of um, the other women having contact with the defendant and he had been carrying she had been carrying a grudge against Turley for a long time. Marsha, Turley, and Chorus each drank shots of alcohol, with Marsha consuming two or three shots. When Chris left the bar, Marsha and Turley were bickering. Turley, sorry. No, I believe that. Yeah. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah, that's there is definitely a lot of the, I don't know, maybe, Maybe I'm just weird. I don't see this outside of small towns, or this is the only place I've really seen it. I, I see it in true crime stories, and I saw it in my hometown, but I don't seem to see it anywhere else. Yeah. That this whole, um, oh, you, you're you too close to my man type thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see a lot of that. Maybe I'm just weird. I, I, I do agree that I definitely saw a lot of it more in Kiwani and other small towns I lived in. So. I mean, if you don't have an, enough drama going on in your life, I guess you have to create some. And I think maybe because there are less people, there's less selection of people to date. <laughs> so I guess you're kind of like, stay away from my man. He's mine. Well, for me, it was like, we aren't cousins, are we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, even then, that doesn't stop people. <laughs> yeah, if your last name was Swedish sounding, I started trying to ask, okay, so where are you in relation to the Appels? Because there's a related, I'm like related to half the phone book when I was growing up. Not so much now. Most people, a lot of people have left that were um, cousins of mine, but yes. So around 10 p.m., the defendant went to the men's bathroom to smoke some one hitters of marijuana. 
I had to look that one up too. Yeah. Apparently you can buy these little one at a time little bits. Anyhow. Um, so at this time, his gun was in the pocket of his coat, which was draped over the back of a bar stool. While he was in the bathroom, he first heard Baldwin raise her voice about something and then heard two or three gunshots. When he came out of the bathroom, he saw Marsha with one foot up on a bar stool, leaning over the bar with the gun. Marsha then followed, fired another shot. Turley was already lying on the floor. Marsha was sitting on the, her bar stool in a daze and the defendant took the gun from her. The defendant looked out the door to see if anyone heard the shots. He then walked around the bar, saw Baldwin lying on the floor behind the bar. The defendant decided to try to cover things up by making it look like a robbery. He took the money out of the register and the money bags from underneath the register. He then grabbed Marsha and they left the bar. They went home where the defendant proceeded to hide the money and burn the money bags. He later put the gun in a friend's garage. Friend's garage. So this is the other story that came out of this. So um, this is where, like, that whole the crime scene investigator saying, no, this couldn't have been shot from the bar stool. This had to be somebody standing over her, or the, the bartender. Yeah. It kind of puts this to rest, if you will. So Marsha, um, the yep. defendant told Marsha that if it came down to it, she should tell the police that he committed the murders. Um, but then he went and confessed to them, which is okay. Yeah, because that's basically when we get to the part where, like, he's talk. They're talking to the investigators. They, you know, confer and say, "Hey, well, you know, your wife says you did it," and that's when he confesses. Mm-hmm. So um, that they take that to mean, okay, so he tries to say, "Well, that's where we were sticking to our story." Yeah, because he didn't want her to be taken away from her children. So. But we heard this, like, with the last story. Don't confess to something and then think you're later going to get it thrown out because of duress. I mean, really, just don't don't talk to the cops if you're (laughs) under scrutiny for murder. But, hey. So, on cross-examination, the defendant denied having financial problems but admitted that business at at his tattoo shop was slow and he was behind on the rent. So... They were having some income issues, and I i mean, when he was talking earlier about being able to shoot it up at McDonald's, I mean... Yeah, and uh, I mean, their only income was from that tattoo shop, and I couldn't find anything on the tattoo shop now. I mean, again, this was in the earlier 90s, so finding stuff on businesses that, are, that were alive back then in Kiwani are harder, but um, he's behind in his rent. They're, you know, having monetary issues, $285. I mean, how much was rent in their apartment or in their shop? Because it's a small town. Yeah. When my mom bought that house in Kiwani, it was what, like $200 or something? Because it was a $20,000 house. Yeah. Think about that. That's less than most people buy a car for anymore. That's so true. So when he went into Philly's on that afternoon, he took the gun into the bar because he did not want to leave it in the truck. That's his story, and he's sticking to it. Um, (laughs) When he returned to Philly's after going home at dinner time, the gun was still in his coat pocket. He admitted he had no intention of target shooting on the evening because it was already dark. Again, it's February in yeah. Kiwani, Illinois. So, so it's it, cold as heck out. It, I mean, I can't even imagine going target shooting. Again. Yeah. Usually in February in Illinois, 
there's a lot of snow on the ground. It's cold. Mm-hmm. And it's dark early. Yeah. I mean, it's dark at what, like 4 35 o'clock. Yeah. It's very so again, early. I mean, they, and if maybe if they hadn't stayed for four hours playing pool, they would have had time for target shooting. But they don't even say where they were planning to go target shooting. It doesn't sound like he really intended to, though. So Sounds more like he was preparing for a robbery. And back to another fun fact. As we mentioned last week, or last uh, episode, and I mentioned earlier this episode, there's this thing called Hawk Days in Kewanee, Illinois, uh, uh, Labor Day weekend. So we found <laughs> a hilarious description um, with regard to staying in hotel uh, in a hotel in Kewanee. For a more bohemian experience, try the Kewanee Hotel and Motel at 125 North Chestnut where the rates range from $25 to $39 a night. The once grand downtown hotel, built in 1916, has fallen on hard times and now houses a scary-looking <laughs> night lounge <laughs> called Night Moves, an old-time barbershop and a handful of single old men. <laughs> I can so picture this. Weekly rates include air conditioning, HBO, and free local calls. That's pretty good deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm down. We no. were the only customers <laughs> under 60 the day we lunched at the Baron Family Restaurant Which at 409 Tenny. I used to waitress that, by the way. Okay. <laughs> A rather nondescript pancake house whose claim to fame is breakfast anytime. Prices are cheap. Pancakes, $2.45. Eggs or grilled cheese sandwiches are two thirty-five. But the pickings are slim for strict vegetarians. The tap water in Kiwani. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard to get out because it is so funny. Because uh, it is so true. Tastes like an unholy mixture of salt and eggs. So be sure to order something else. So if you've been to Kiwani or you lived in Kiwani, you know, you would know that. The water is awful. Although I've heard it's been fixed since. Um, yeah. but Try at your own peril. Yeah, definitely try at your own risk. I know that a couple people when I was going to school, there was at least one girl that moved in and she was begging her parents to get bottled water just to brush their teeth. It's bad. It was so bad. I mean, the everything rotten rusted. Eggs. Rotten eggs. I mean, this this was very <laughs> accurate. Very, very accurate. Okay, so on to part three of the Wooly case. So Marsha is the next one up to testify, and she states that Martin shot D first and then Rain second. Um, she also took the stand and stated that she would invoke her Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination in response to all questions regarding the murders. Um, there's some more later about Marsha and her relationship with Dee. Uh, it does seem to be quite a... They, they really did not get along. Yeah, I mean, apparently it just seems like there was just that whole, I think you're trying to take my man type situation. Definitely. All right, so this is where it gets kind of confusing because you've got all these different testimony pieces happening. So Lieutenant Shanahan and Detective Cervantes are the ones who are um, interviewing Martin. Detective Ince was the one who was uh, interviewing Marsha. We can get this straight, I promise. 
So at this point in time, um, so back to that whole trial piece, and we've got uh, Lieutenant Shanahan is now providing testimony um, on the day that they are talking to Marsha and Martin. Of course, they've got them split up into two different rooms, as they typically would do, because they're trying to figure out who shot whom and how. So at some point in time with Lieutenant Ince, uh, or sorry, Detective Ince, Marsha says that it was all Martin. Martin did the shooting. Yeah. So, of course, Lieutenant Shanahan and Detective Cervantes got pulled out of their interview to be told, hey, by the way, she is implicating that he did all of this. So then we get to, this is where Lieutenant Shanahan then goes into his discussion about what happened when um, Martin was told his wife gave him up. Yes, yeah, so um, then basically the Martin's kind of sat up straight in his chair and said he wanted an attorney, and then he said, I killed them. Yeah, I killed them. So when asked how long the interval of time was between the defendant's request for an attorney and his statement that he killed them, Lieutenant Shanahan testified that it was just a matter of seconds. Um, so then, you know, of course, because he requested to have an attorney, you know. They were faced with this. Okay, well, we want this testimony. testimony. Duh. So they had to um, go to Martin and say, all right, we got, we got issues here. Yeah. We'd like you to um, testify. Are you going to recant your need for an attorney? Will you talk to us now without an attorney? Or do you want to get an attorney before you talk any further? Yeah. And he did recant. He decided to talk to them without an attorney. And they got him on tape saying that he that recanted That whole part it. that we said at the beginning, that whole part that Missy um, relayed at the beginning yeah. is his testimony to start. Yeah. And so, and that was recorded by the police as they uh, went through the formal statement. So following the closing arguments, the jury deliberated and returned a verdict finding the defendant guilty on all counts. Um, so the hearing, the sentencing hearing uh, commenced immediately. No evidence was presented at the eligibility hearing, but arguments were presented by both sides. Uh, the jury found the defendant eligible for the death penalty based on three statutory aggravating factors. Um, murder, first is murder of two or more individuals. Second is murder in the course of another felony. And third is murder uh, committed in cold, calculated, and premeditated manner pursuant to a preconceived plan, scheme, or design to take a human life. Um, so then the phase of the death penalty hearing began about a week later. Uh, following the closing arguments, the jury returned a verdict finding no mitigating factors sufficient to preclude a sentence of death. So he was sentenced to death. So Marsha was then sentenced to prison for 18 months for obstruction of justice and later eight years on a federal charge of purchasing a weapon and giving it to a known felon. Yeah, that whole she bought a gun and gave it to her husband that you know she knew he was a felon. <laughs> and um, she was released in 2002. Uh, Martin did appeal three times, and he did not win any of those appeals. Um, and then Marsha appealed once, I think. 
Yeah, the eight-year sentence she appealed. And she also did not um, win. So they... So according to prison records, Martin has thrown a hot liquid substance on a guard and has been found with sharpened objects, among other violations. Um, Martin also uh, has a history of burglary, theft, and multiple misdemeanor offenses, as well as the 12 violations he has had since arriving at the correctional center. Yeah, because some of those earlier things... Some of the trying to do a little more research on the Woolies, again, since it was in the early 90s, trying to go back through Kiwani records, I found some uh, multiple traffic stops. He had a suspended license. There's just a lot of little things and a handful of bigger things, like the burglary stuff. He actually had been found to have a bunch of items that were stolen from, was it like a machine shop or something? Yeah. I think yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. It was one of those pieces yeah. that we weren't going to talk about. And then here I am talking about it. Woohoo. Well, yay me. You know, we, we did a lot of research for this case and there's a lot of information and we could kind of go into a lot more with the appeals. But to be honest, it's just a lot of the same information over again because right. he pretty much just said that his defense didn't do what they should have done, which, you know, I mean, of course he's going to say that he's on death row. Right. Um, well, and he, I mean, he tried to say that his counsel was ineffective, but then yeah. what they brought to the table just didn't fit the bill. Like they were like, oh, I should have constructed my own crime scene. Mm-hmm. And they had brought their own version in it to try to figure out and deconstruct that it could have been his wife that did, that did the crimes. And they decided that with all of the other testimony in there, it wouldn't have swayed the jury. And another time he was trying to get his confession thrown out and i mean they had gone around and around in circles on the confession right so there was no new evidence to bring forth on that so right he just kept getting shot down yes all right and now for another fun fact it's kind of hard to talk about kiwani without talking about the boiler (laughs) um the kiwani boiler company um began in 1892 but actually, it's marked its beginning in as early as 1868 because the same business had gone through. So apparently in 1868, a gentleman named Valerius Anderson, wonder if I'm a relation. Again, you could be. All those Swedish names. Started a company uh, to make steam heating devices for to heat animal feed. By 1871, Anderson Steam Heater, as it was called, began making steam boilers for homes and businesses as well. As you may or may not know, boilers are actually one of the most efficient ways to heat spaces. Um, So they moved the company um, uh, to Kiwani, and it actually got new ownership, some guy named William Haxton. And he brought the company from about 30 people to 1,000 in 1891. Kind of cool. So booming business, right? Um, They changed it to some tube company. They're trying to get, again, just trying to re- figure out what they're going to do. Well, around 1906, um, the boiler history was made, if you will, by developing a quote-unquote smokeless boiler. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> and they made a million-dollar addition to the plant in 1920 and major contribution uh, contributions to the war effort in both World War One and Two. So there, this was just really big business. By 1906... Um, their productions of tubes, pipes, valves, as well as the boilers themselves required over 4,000 people to work at the plant. 
That's so a pretty decent amount that's of people. Pretty decent. And the size, it was 33 acres, and they had about 13 acres of buildings. I mean, you wow. remember some of those old yeah. buildings. They were pretty neat looking. They were. So, I mean, it was around until 2002. And actually, today, I, to date, if you will, I looked the other day to, okay, what else can I find out about Kiwani Boiler? And they still, there are companies out there that create retrofitted pieces for Kiwani Boilers because they are just such big, amazing things. And you may have seen one if you've watched TV or movies. Mm-hmm. They've made a couple of, uh, I don't know, cameo appearances, if you will, such as in The Blues Brothers and Shameless. You see Kiwani Boilers in both of those. And I remember as a kid growing up hearing that we actually, they had actually converted some to make um, the chambers for polio. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that too. But when I was actually looking at Kiwani, you would think that would make it into the historical, right? For the Kiwani Historical Society would actually say something about it if it happens. So yeah, we both heard up heard the stories, but I don't see it in maybe maybe not. Well, you know, the Iron Lung. Yeah, yeah, I went and did uh, extra research on the Iron Lung, but since I didn't actually find that we had done any, it was kind of like, oh well. And just to note, the um, Kiwani High School, their mascot is the Boilermakers. So. Again, that's why I said you can't talk about Kiwani without yeah. talking about the Boiler. But yeah, it's a pretty big business. Um, apparently, uh, it had been kind of um, co-opted by Walworth. Um, there was just a lot of, again, like I said, small town, big business for the small town. Mm-hmm. And was one of the things that really made it boom for a while there. Yeah. All right, so at the end of the day, you know, um, we talked about Martin receiving the death sentence, which you may also remember from the last time around, there was something going on in Illinois with the death sentences. But before um, he had received the death sentence and it was set aside twice on technicalities, his sentence was commuted to life when former Governor George Ryan issued a moratorium on the death sentence, which Melissa will go into a little bit further. Yeah, so uh, this is January 11th, 2003. I'm going to read this article and I'm going to read through the entire thing just because there's a lot of comments from people whose um, who's people uh, basically who who's affected by yeah, this. Yeah, very the victims of this. Um, so uh, this is from Journal Springfield Bureau, uh, Springfield, Illinois. Um, Saturday, convicted murderer Timothy Buss got at something he didn't give his young victim, life. Buss kidnapped 10-year-old Christopher Meyer near, near Kankakee, castrated him, and stabbed him 52 times before burying the boy's body in a shallow grave. Christopher's mother... Micah Moulton says she has no doubt it was Bus who brutally murdered her son, but Saturday, Bus was among 167 current and pending death row inmates who had their sentences reduced to life without parole. This guy gets to live out the rest of his natural life. Christopher didn't get to, Moulton said. I hope the souls of these dead children haunt Governor, Governor Ryan. Death penalty opponents have hailed Ryan as a hero, saying he showed courage in questioning Illinois' broken capital punishment system, but many victims' families were outraged that Ryan would undo what prosecutors and juries had done. 
I hate what he's doing. That guy killed my daughter and he should be put to death, said Walter Smith. His daughter, Diana Turley, and Rain Baldwin were shot to death by Martin Woolley during an armed robbery at the Kiwani Bar where they were working. Ryan first hinted he might do a blanket uh, commutation, but later said it wasn't likely an option. He said it wasn't until Friday night that he decided to blanket clemency uh, would be best. He said he understands that families might be angry with him. I told families it was on the front burner, the back burner, and that I probably wouldn't do it at all. They have a right, I would guess, to feel like they were betrayed, he said. I'm hoping they have an understanding of the process I've been through and that my obligation is far broader than their desires and their wishes. Ryan added, my concerns have have to be what's good for Illinois and all the people. In the end, I had to do what I thought was best. Terry Hoyt of Decatur was one of the few family members of a murder victim who commended Ryan's decision. I think it took a lot of guts to do what he's done. You talk about human lives, we've lost enough. When you talk about putting innocent people to death and letting the guilty walk free, there's something wrong with our justice system. But Hoyt, whose 23-year-old daughter, Dorianne Warnsley, was shot and stabbed to death in 1994, also admits that her situation was different than many others. She fervently believes that prosecutors sent the wrong man to death row. Montel Johnson was sentenced to death for the crime, but as part of Ryan's mass commutations, he singled out the cases of three men, Johnson, Mario Flores, and William Franklin, whom he says were less culpable of the crime than co-defendants, but nonetheless got more time. He commuted their sentences to 40 years in prison. Jennifer Bishop, chairwoman of Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation of Illinois, said that families have been failed by Illinois' justice system and that the state must move forward to create a system that gives them fair and accurate results. Yeah, I have some feels about this. Because remember, we we dealt with this in the last story again. One of the uh, gentlemen that was the death penalty, well, I mean, yeah, there were a couple people who were sentenced to death right. for the crimes against the children that we talked about in the last uh, episode, and we ran across this then, too. There were a couple people who were going to have the death penalty, then got life. Right. I mean... Because of this commutation. It is, it is definitely a tough situation for people who have lost somebody close to them and to know that at one point these people were going to be put to death and now they're given life. Um, and I mean, they're hopefully never going to get out of prison, but it can be a shock if you're expecting one thing and you get something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. There's definitely, it's quite the hot topic to this. Well, it's a hot button topic. It's been around of for course, a yeah. very long time, whether we should or shouldn't kill somebody because they're, um, crimes are so heinous right but at the same time you can see from the victim's family's perspective it's like yeah well you cut down the, this life but you get to maintain yours maintain yours yeah i mean and how do you i can't even imagine being in the justice system and trying to determine you know how to do any of this so you know it's um 
in the end, it's very sad for anybody. Families of the victims, family of the accused, you know, no way, I don't know if there's ever a real clear line on this one, but. No. And it was, it was odd how the governor, you'd think again, a governor would have maybe a little more couth. Yeah. And how he went about saying why he came to this decision. It sounds flim flam. It does. Sounds like, well, I wasn't really thinking about it. I'm just going to do that. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. I decided this is a good thing. (laughs) Why? Right. Give people a little bit more than just, I wasn't going to do it and then I was going to do it and oh well. And yeah. Too bad. So sad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It just sounds. I read that article and I'm like, wait, what now? Right. Well, and that's part of the reason I felt it was kind of important to read the entire article because it it really does go to show that there are many people affected by this. So, but that is, uh, that is our episode for today. Woo, Um, we made it through a second one. Hope you all have enjoyed it and we will be back in about three weeks. Um, Sorry, we were delayed a week on this one, and we're going to be another three weeks. She had a funeral. She had a weekend, funeral. So. I'm going on vacation. There's, <laughs> we have lives. Yeah, and and really, as much as we love doing all this stuff, we do have to kind of make sure we stay healthy and sane in between yes. episodes. Yes, and we want to have time to do our research. We want to be able to give you facts and information. And I mean, there's even in this one. I mean, I. I sent Tara a couple days ago something. I'm like, well, we could talk about this. And have you researched this? And I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, (laughs) there's just so much. Um, Right. Because, again, you tend to hear things only through the lens of we watch a lot of murder shows, if you will, true crime. And you don't necessarily always get all that extra. Like the stuff with gunshot residue tests aren't that good yeah and i mean there's so much information on that out there i i started going through pages and going yeah i'm not gonna have an answer for this episode i feel like (laughs) basically what you run into when you're trying to research that piece is you've got two trains of thought and Mm -hmm. nobody has made a definitive decision decision. I i don't see i have yet to see something where it's very definitive yeah no it sucks yeah versus Oh, no, it's the best thing since sliced bread. So I don't know. Right. So and um, like I said, we will be back in about three weeks. And we want to thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. No, they definitely aren't. <laughs> Remember, lock those doors. So you can follow us on Instagram at Nothing Happens in a Small Town. Our Twitter handle is at N-H-I-A-S-T. Which stands for Nothing, Nothing Happens, Happens in a Small Town. town. You can go find our Facebook page on Nothing Happens, Happens in a small, small Town. And our Gmail is Nothing Happens in a Small Town at gmail.com. So I did also set up a, uh, it's called a Patreon page, and I will put those links out on our social media and it's just if you want to we are not by any means uh really asking anybody to but if you've enjoyed our podcast and you would like to contribute um it would help us to get some equipment better equipment equipment, uh maybe uh you know some of the uh research things we've done we've had to pay for and that sort of thing so it would be helpful but not necessary and we appreciate you listening thank you bye bye